You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Today's guest is Katrina Moon. Katrina attended the Naval Academy in 2005 and was commissioned into the Air Force in 2009. She initially commissioned in the Navy as a midshipman, but cross-commissioned to the Air Force when she graduated. She served five years on active duty and is currently serving in the reserves with almost 10 years of military service. She is a developmental engineer and has worked on projects ranging from F-16 engines instructing at the Air Force Academy and working on developing technologies related to satellite. When she isn't working for the Air Force, she works to keep the four small humans in her home alive and well. I'm excited to learn more about your experience in the military. Welcome, Katrina. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up going to the Naval Academy? When we were young, um, I have four brothers and we were just really imbued with the fact that service was something that was really important and valued in our family. I kind of have the unique um, position where not only did my mom do ROTC, but my grandmother was in the Women's Army Corps. So I'm the third generation female veteran in my family. My grandfather was in the Army and my father was. So like I said, just the tradition of service was definitely there. And um, from a young age, I knew that I wanted to spend at least a little bit of time in the military, potentially make it a career. I didn't really know at that point, but um, definitely wanted to serve. So as I got older into high school, or I guess maybe even in junior high is when I um, started, you know, learned about RTC because like I said, my mom had done that and then started to learn about the service academies. My two older brothers, especially my oldest brother, was really interested in going to one of the academies. So um, we visited those and that was pretty much where I made my decision that I definitely want to go to an academy if I could get in and serve in. And I pretty much narrowed it down to either the Navy or the Air Force at that point. Um, My senior year, I got into both academies and I ended up choosing to go to the Naval Academy. And yeah, so that's basically my road to entering the service. Wow, that's so impressive that you got into both the Navy and the Air Force Academy. What made you decide to pick the Navy over the Air Force? So this is going to sound odd, I think. Um, But right around the time that I was, but I'll just be fully honest. I, right around the time I was applying was right after Air Force had had um, a big sexual assault um, issue. And it was all over the news and it had really just sort of altered uh, the academy. And they were really trying to recover from that. And as what most people would think is, I was not nervous about going to the Air Force Academy. The My reasoning is actually kind of different from that in that whenever I went I visited there and then I also went to um, some candidate events and it was almost as though the knee-jerk reaction from those events made it that I didn't really feel like on the same footing as any other candidates. And I say that to the fact that I went to a candidate information night and there were probably 60, 60 candidates there and 
I walked into the auditorium and my mom and I both noticed six officers just flooded right around us. And I think I was the only um, woman there. And I just started noticing, I was like, man, we're getting, I'm, it sounds weird, but I'm almost getting way too much attention. And when we went to our candidate visit, I just felt like, I don't even know how to say it, except that it was, I, I was worried I wasn't going to be part of the team because everyone was um, so kind of overcompensating for what had happened. So I appreciate the fact that obviously they were responding to something, but it almost seemed like it was too extreme for me. And I was like, man, if I'm always going to be this like special set aside person, I don't know if this is really the, what I'm looking for. I really just want to be, you know, like everyone else and just quote unquote, one of the guys all together on the same team. So that was really um, one of the things that drove me to go to the Naval Academy. And I really wanted to fly. And I knew that both service academies, um, you know, obviously you could become a pilot out of either one. And then in the Navy, we flew fighters, you could fly off the carrier, which sounded awesome as well. So that's kind of my long story as to why I decided to, why I chose Navy, but it took a long time for me to make that decision. I remember that scandal and I never really would have thought about how that would have impacted women who were looking at going up the Air Force Academy. So thank you for sharing your experience. What was it like to attend the Naval Academy? That's hard to sum up. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, <laughs> they always say the best view is in your rearview mirror from any of the academies. I know that, but it was really hard, but I also loved it as much as I hate to admit that. I loved, and it's the same thing in just the military, why I enjoyed it. I loved the camaraderie. I loved, I had such a good company that I was a part of. And I just, I felt like, you know, we were, you know, such a team and there are so many excellent people that are there that one of my favorite aspects is if you ever felt like you were good or talented in any area, there is someone there who's better, but in a way that could make you better. Since I didn't feel like we were competing against one another as much as helping one another out. So if you were a good runner, there was someone who was way faster than you and could help you run a better marathon time. If you were really good at calculus, there was some brainiac that was, you know, far further advanced than you. So I love the fact of just being around excellence. I enjoyed it. It obviously was not the typical college experience, but I did enjoy it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And think a lot of things in life, when you look back at them, it's easier to appreciate what you've gone through. Absolutely. And then you said that you wanted to be a pilot, but you ended up being a developmental engineer. So is that part of why you ended up switching from the Navy back to the Air Force? Or how did that all work? Yes. So I found out my sophomore year that because of an eye surgery I had had, the Navy would not give me a waiver to become a pilot. At that point, I was sort of looking at my options. Um, there was a chance that I could be a Naval flight officer in the Navy, but if not, I would have needed to pick from the couple other uh, jobs. And it's, it's interesting the differences between the Air Force and the Navy, because in the Navy, there are very few buckets you can fall into. You know, you're an aviator, you're a surface warfare officer on a ship or subs, or you go Marine. I mean, there aren't you can count them on one hand versus the Air Force has, you know, they just do it a lot more, more specificity, I guess you could say. So when I was looking at not having the pilot option, I decided to apply 
um, to do a cross commission, or no, I'm sorry, not a cross commission, but just to attend the Air Force Academy for a semester. They have an exchange program where a few cadets and midshipmen can swap. And plus, it just sounded fun to be in Colorado for, <laughs> for a semester as well. So I went out there and I started looking into their medical requirements and they actually easily provide waivers for the same surgery. So um, I was looking at that and I was like, well, I you know, potentially become a pilot. I was an astronautical engineering major. And that's when I learned that in the Air Force, I could be a developmental engineer if I gra- when I graduated, or I could go into space, you know, and become a space systems operator. So I saw that I could have, you know, really along with what I felt like my skill sets were, I could utilize though, even if I couldn't fly. Side note, I met a handsome cadet and who's now my husband. So that definitely was a motivating factor into my senior year when we looked at, you know, we weren't engaged yet, but, um, you know, we were just looking like we were probably getting engaged and how that piece of it was also going to, going to look. But I initially, it's funny, I initially started it simply out of a different career path. So the academies do have a process for any of the graduates to cross. And there are a couple that cross every year, uh, fluctuates up and down. There's a small handful though. And so I decided to cross. And um, at the time that I was granted cross commission was in the spring of my senior year. It was really late that I found out I had been awarded it. And all the pilot slots were already taken. So they assigned me, they said, okay, you can list, you can choose from these jobs. So I chose developmental engineer, plan being to apply to pilot pilot training in the next round a couple months after graduating, which I did. And they said, yep, no problem with the surgery. It's all fine. It's all good to go. And I was leaving the clinic and the flight doc was like, yeah, they should have no problem. And um, with at least the medical part of the pilot training application. And literally this airman comes running out the doors and she's like, oh ma'am, we forgot to do one test on your eyes. We can just do it here in the hallway. And she did it. She's like, um, let me do it one more time. Um, let me do it one more time. She goes, uh, let's go back and let's talk to the doctor. And uh, I failed this little stupid red lens test. So didn't end up getting become a pilot because of a totally different reason. But yeah, that's sort of my long story as to my transition from the Navy to the Air Force as a developmental engineer. And so you met your husband at the, the cross campus for that semester you guys met. Yeah, so he was a cadet at the Air Force Academy. And then were you guys the same year group or? We were, and he was also an astronautical engineering major. We actually, he likes to tell everyone that um, we met in rocket propulsion class and sparks flew. It's really funny. Yeah. Like an engineering joke. That's probably Yep, exactly. Uh, and then with you leaving the Navy and you guys were both developmental engineers, were you able to get stationed together or? So he actually is a pilot. Um, He was an engineering major. Yep. He was an engineering major, but he got a pilot slot out of graduation. Okay. So how, you said that you weren't engaged yet, but obviously eventually you got engaged. So how did it work from graduation to getting together? So we did, we got engaged senior year and then he was assigned pilot training in Enid, Oklahoma, and they did work with me. The academy, since you can't be married at the academy, they they do kind of work with you, allowing you to pseudo clarify joint spouse um, if you're engaged, because they know that you can't be married until right after you get graduate until after you graduate. So they did work with us, and they and I was assigned to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. So I was about two hours, a little over two hours away from him, which is the best that they could do. So while he was in Enid, that was great. Just how pilot training works, he finished up 
the first phase in Oklahoma, and then he tracked helicopters. So then he went to Fort Rucker in Alabama. And because he wasn't going to be there that long, it didn't make sense for me to, you know, try to PCS to, and there's no, you know, it's an army base. So, so he went to Fort Rucker and then he came to Kirtland for his last phase of pilot training. And then he got orders to um, Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. And I was able to get joint spouse with him up there in the very few engineer spots they had at that base. That sounds like a lot of mill-to-mill careers where you're separated a lot. And yes. if you get lucky, then you can get together. So so yeah, after two years, and he, he always jokes, he goes, you know, we bought a house, had a kid, and then finally decided to move in together. <laughs> so. so you were in for five years as a developmental engineer. And then what were you doing during that time? So in Oklahoma, I was an F-16 propulsion engineer. And then while I was in, at Tinker, they needed uh, someone to go on a deployment as a air traffic control and landing system engineer, basically hopping all over the country of Afghanistan, doing um, site surveys and just kind of trying to get a handle on the equipment that we have, how it's working and come up with a better utilization plan for it. So I was a little bit, um, I'll be honest, it was a little bit of a challenge for me when I found out I wasn't going to be able to be a pilot. And um, I love the people I was working with in the office, but it was 95% civilian. So it was kind of an odd shift from going from the Naval Academy and finally getting out and feeling like now I'm going to, you know, be in the real military. And I really kind of felt more like I was an engineer who'd graduated from Ohio State. And which obviously is fine, but it was just really a shift of a mentality from what, you know, you kind of envision when you start military service. So I was, I saw this deployment opportunity and I knew my husband was about to start pilot training and I messaged him like, hey, they want me to leave in 30 days. They need an engineer go for this. What do you think? He goes, okay. So um, I did that deployment and after that came back and then we got stationed in Montana and that's where I worked as a technical engineer for the intercontinental ballistic missiles, the nukes up there in the silos. And that's where I finished off active duty time. I didn't expect you to say that you deployed because most of the developmental engineers I know, if they've deployed, it definitely wasn't worth in the first five years. It's more in like the 10 to 15 year range. So that's really interesting. I want to hear more about your experience in Afghanistan, especially because you bounced around and got to see a lot of the country from what it sounds like. It was extremely unique. Um, I was told the same thing when I got to the station by my commander because I had asked about deployment opportunities and he said, we won't deploy anyone who's not at least a captain. And even if they are, they need to be here for at least two years. And I knew people who had volunteered for 20 plus deployments as an engineer trying to get deployed. And it really the only reason this one worked out for me is it was a very short time window. So a lot of the people who had volunteered for deployments in the past you know, we're older, had established families, kids, wife, and the time crunch of when they needed to leave was just not going to be realistic. So I went on this very unconventional deployment where I didn't deploy with a unit. I um, And actually my battle buddy who was supposed to go with me got pulled off the deployment last minute. So I was a second lieutenant and I hadn't even been commissioned for a year. 
And the Lieutenant Colonel looked at me and he said, well, do you still want to go? You know, it's going to be months if we try and get someone else on them to get them trained up. And I was just so gung-ho. I'm like, nope, I want to go. Send me, send me. So he basically gave me a map of the country and he said, you need to hit up all these different sites and these different um, FOBs, forward operating bases. These are the places where all the equipment is. And um, at each place, I would... I would get there and um, instead of fully in processing, I would just be like, hey, I'm only here transiting through. They would just give me a tent or, you know, a bunk in the, a bunk in a tent. And I would be like, hey, I need to find the air traffic control system. You know, where, where are they? Where's their hut? And so I would just basically word of mouth and just talk my way around until I could connect with people. I would do what I had to do. I would write up my report and then I would work on figuring out how I was going to get to my next base. So I would, the same kind of thing, start asking around, be like, hey, where's this one? Is there any way I can hop on a convoy going there? I tried to avoid convoys and I would go to the, the PAX terminal and you can put your name down and say, I need to go to XYZ base. And then you're basically on a waiting list with a priority. And kind of would just, they'd be like, okay, well, there's going to be a bird leaving tomorrow morning at zero five. You can come and wait and see if you can get on. So I would just show up and hang out and maybe get on and maybe not. And if I didn't, I'd try and, you know, hang out for the boredom of that deployments can sometimes be for the rest of the day and go back again the next day. So sometimes I would spend a week just trying to get out of base and really any kind of transportation I could. And so the deal was, as soon as I'd gone to each of these places and I'd written up all the reports, then I would come home. So it was very unconventional. And I tell people about it and they're like, I don't really. It's like, yeah, that's just, it's just what we did. Um, but I definitely got the, as a second lieutenant in the Air Force, I had more than one occasion where I got the what the hell is a second lieutenant in the Air Force doing over here? Just because, like you said, a lot of times any of these developmental engineer type jobs or these types of jobs, you don't deploy until you're, you know, a captain at least. And pilots usually don't have their wings and aren't deployment ready until they're, you know, a senior first lieutenant. So it was very unique, but I'm really grateful that I got to have that opportunity and kind of get that out of my system in a weird way to say of um, where I was just so gung-ho out of the gate. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And like so much responsibility for a young second lieutenant. You were on your own <laughs> hopping around from base to base and doing your job. So it sounds like it was a pretty neat experience. It was. I honestly can't imagine sending my, my own second lieutenant on a deployment like that. But yeah, this is kind of colonel I get think which is anxious to have someone get the job done and I was super anxious to do it. So yeah, that sounds really neat. Did you get to? Did you go on any convoys? You said you tried to avoid them, but did you? Yes, um, I did get to. We went to the Afghan Air Force Base, and I did go out on some convoys. And I also volunteered with um, Operation Care, which is from from what I gathered it. Organiz what they call basically the organization. And I think it's run by the chaplains. I don't know if it's at every base, but every time that I was in um, Bagram, especially when I was just waiting around, I didn't have much else to do. So a lot of times when people just send care packages to, um, to the chaplains, they have to have some way of sort of distributing that. So 
I would volunteer with this Operation Care. And then we got to go out and some of the stuff we would sort it out. Some of it was for military members. So we would send that with guys who were going to these really remote fobs. And, you know, it's one of the hard things when they talk about what to put in a care package, because if you're at a big base like Bagram, you can buy your own soap. That's not a big deal. But at these fobs, some of them don't even have, you know, showers. So, um, we would kind of dole out basically what was in it and we'd send some out to fobs. But a lot of times people would actually send things like small toys and clothes and stuff for Afghans. So with Operation Care, able to go out and we would, you know, separate everything out and send it out where they would do like a vaccination clinic and they would try and get the locals to come by having things like toys and clothing and then hopefully be able to be like, oh, by the way, we have, you know, vaccinations. So that was a cool thing to kind of see that part of the country and see more of the like the humanity, I guess, that can somewhat be removed when you're just in that military mindset. Yeah, that's very true because my deployment to Afghanistan wasn't a traditional Air Force deployment. And so I went out into the villages and it was a very different experience to go out and meet the people of Afghanistan instead of just being on like Bagram, which is this huge base. That yeah, you, absolutely. It's That's like so this, cool. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's cool to hear your story about getting to see more than just the military bikes, but actually getting to see and interact with the people. And I just loved it just warmed my heart whenever I would see all the little girls always wearing, you know, the same school outfit with the white head covering and just to see them. I just, I still can just picture it in my mind of just seeing them all walk to school. When I was there, it was the, um, I think the 10th anniversary. So in the newspaper, they had just some of the stats of the country over the past 10 years and 10th or 9th, I can't remember, but um, it talked about how, you know, before we were there, there were no girls going to school. And there and when I was there, there were over a million little girls in school. And that part of it just warmed my heart. Yeah, it's nice to be able to see the good things that are happening and not just what you hear on the news. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Did you face any struggles while serving in the military? I, I think, honestly, the the hardest part and the reason why I decided to go out, get out, was just the rigidity of the structure of the military and not... I'm not, not meaning like the military is off structured, but in trying to balance having a family and trying to be stationed together or try to have a somewhat more unconventional work schedule, I think that was the biggest driving factor for for my decision to not stay the whole time on active duty. Because yeah, just trying to trying to balance that. We were lucky to get one joint, one joint assignment, but we knew the next one was not going to be able to work. So that was, um, I think that was kind of our, the hardest part that I had with the military. Yeah, that is definitely one of the hardest parts of mill to mill is being able to be stationed together and being able to like manage all the outside factors that military life brings while trying to like raise a family. So you decided to leave the military and do reserves. Why did you make the switch to reserves instead of just getting out of the Air Force? So I love serving in the military and I have enjoyed being an engineer. So I love the fact that as a reservist, I would be able to continue military service, that I would be able to stay connected to engineering and be able to sort of continue so that in the future, I don't have a giant break, you know, on my resume, but I can stay a little bit connected, but I could spend the majority of my time with my kids. Um, Also, the fact that I don't have to worry about being stationed 
away from my husband and those kind of decisions that I know military mill mill families are faced with all the time. And um, also just from a uh, benefit standpoint, if I stayed in the reserves, I could fulfill the requirement of GI Bill so I could give that benefit to my kids and I could keep on, you know, slowly chugging away for retirement. Um, And then I love the fact that there's some flexibility that in the future when my kids are all in school or if they're out of the house that I've known numerous reservists to go back to full-time orders and kind of finish the way they started. So I love the flexibility that it gave me that I didn't like when I was on active duty or, you know, that I felt it was, was missing when I was on active duty, but that I could continue service and kind of have sort of the best of both worlds. And that's a great benefit to know about if you are in the military, especially if you're a mom and you want to have kids and you want to spend that time with them to know that you have that option or at least to look into that option if you're trying to decide if you want to stay in or get out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I know people now who are like, man, I wish I would have. I wish I would have just done the reserves. I was just ready to get out and not to have to worry about, you know, where I was going to be moved to or where I was going to be stationed and all these kind of things. So yes, it's, it's worked out well. <laughs> I'm one of those people who's like, man, I really should have looked into it, but I was just ready to get be out. done. Then you leave and you're like, maybe I wasn't quite ready to be done. Well, and I have the benefit too of as the type of reservist I am and as an engineer that the threat of deployment, because I am in IMA, so an individual mobilization augmentee, which basically means it sort of isn't exactly like this because of engineers, but that I fill the spot when someone else is deployed. It's not really how it works, but that's what the design is for most career fields. So the threat of deployment, you know, they're not supposed to deploy the person whose whole point is to stay behind to fill the slot for the person who is deployed. If if I had a larger threat of being deployed, then staying in the reserves would have definitely been a harder decision. Yeah, and that was probably one of my biggest, because as a civil engineer, the threat of very high. And so that's why, for me, the reserves seem really scary because, Mm -hmm. especially at the time, because now it's changed a little bit, but you could deploy six months after you had a child and I was not, (laughs) I know I wouldn't have been ready to do that. And so, yeah. That's true. That's a good reminder and a factor that you have to consider when you're thinking about doing reserves. What would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? I think that if you have this calling, that it's a gift. It is going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. And it's going to frustrate you. And it's going to ask a lot of you. But it is still a gift and a privilege being part of a team, working together, working for something beyond yourself and testing your own limit. All of those things is not only going to better the nation as you serve, but they're also going to better you and increase your own self-worth, your own resiliency beyond what you thought. So I think that the United States will be better for your service, but so will you. I love that. I think that's really good advice. And I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, you can do hard things. It's worth it. Yes. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I've loved hearing more about your story and just about your experience of being in the military. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.